We're going to read from God's Word. Uh, as you'll know, Helen mentioned earlier, we've been kind of walking through the book of the Acts, and today we're in chapter 9, kind of well-known story of the conversion of Saul, one of the kind of enemies and opponents of Christian faith. And we're going to read, it's a relatively long reading, I've got to read 30 verses, but to give the context of what we're thinking about later, kind of need to read all of it. So hopefully you can follow through with us. If you've got your own Bible, we're in Acts 9. If not, the words are going to appear on screen. This is God's Word. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners. Journey Suddenly, a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once, he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, isn't this the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. After many days had gone by, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him. But Saul learned of their plan. Day and night they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples. But they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. 
He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the believers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. And ending at verse 30, the Lord will bless his truth to all our hearts for Christ's sake. Amen. You'll know that uh, the series that we've been doing here, if you've been around Central this last period of time, is called Church Alive, and we're looking at the story of the church in its earliest days uh, in the uh, book of the Acts. And for this last kind of set, we've been looking at uh, how that church was alive amongst a different set of neighbors, and we've been looking at how that worked out. And today we're thinking about this story about Paul, Saul of Tarsus, who became Paul, um, who became a Christian leader, and how he started off as a neighbor, an opposing neighbor to the church, and what happened. And as I was thinking about this story, I kind of thought about the fact that in the church, we love to say that everyone is welcome. It's one of the things that we frequently say. Everybody's welcome to come to our church. And there's one church I know of uh, in uh, this part of the world that has as a kind of a text over the wall at the front of the church, I was a stranger and you took me in. It's, it's, it's a Bible verse talking about how there is a welcome for people who come. And there's no doubt about it that at times we live up to our calling. People appear, we make them welcome, they find a place in the fellowship and among the community and they settle down to make it their home. But I have to say that it isn't always so. Um, David Burke was the minister of Hamilton Road Church in, in Bangor and became moderator of the General Assembly. And he was quite famous not only of being a significant leader in our church, but of also being a man who loved to play a joke on people. And so during his moderatorial year, he was invited to go to a Christmas dinner in a congregation where he was going to come for the dinner and then he was going to speak afterwards. Now, being moderator of the General Assembly, when you turn up at a local Presbyterian church, they roll the red carpet out for you and everything is done really well and you're made to feel like you're something like the President of the United States rather than just simply an ordinary parish minister. And so knowing that that was the case and by prearrangement with the minister, he decided to turn up dressed like a tramp just to see what would happen. And so obviously they had a space reserved in this particular church for the moderator of the General Assembly. All the other seats were filled. There were, there were no other spaces. The moderator of the General Assembly appeared to be coming late and a tramp turned up at the door. So what would you do? And obviously there was a bit of a commotion. Would they find him a seat? Would they not find him a seat? What were they going to do? Uh, because the only seat they had left was the seat for the moderator and so on. It was quite a kerfuffle went on for a while. And eventually they were good enough to who they were and they found him a seat at the table. I can't remember now at which stage of the evening he revealed who he really was. But you can see the point of the story. He was about to talk about Christmas and about the Son of God who came and wasn't made that welcome. And he had just had a kind of a similar experience turning up as a tramp instead of the moderator of the General Assembly. We talk about everyone being welcome, but we're not always that great at fulfilling that promise 
when people turn up out of certain classes or categories or unexpectedly or whatever. And Acts chapter 9 tells the story of someone the church didn't want to welcome. The context of that story is the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. And what a story it is. Saul was a Jew, not just any old Jew, but somebody who was really advanced in the learning and in the ritualistic practices of his people. He was born in Tarsus, which is in Cilicia, probably in modern-day Turkey, but he grew up in Jerusalem. He studied under one of the most prominent rabbis of his generation, a guy called Gamaliel, and everyone knew him. That's what it says in various texts that Paul talks later about his conversion to Christianity. He talks about how in his own nation, everybody knew him. He was a very serious young man. More than that, he was obsessed. The text we just read says, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. Actually, the verb that is translated there, breathing out, might be more correctly translated, breathing in. That verse is not telling you so much about Saul's activities in terms of persecuting and hurting the church. It's telling you something about Saul himself. As one commentator puts it, threatening and slaughter had come to be the very breath that Saul breathed, like a war horse who sniffed the smell of battle. He had breathed this in. It had become his life. This bitterness, this anger, this hatred had become the very air that he breathed. And he moved against the believers in Jerusalem and in Judea in the wake of the killing of Stephen, And he was ruthless. Three times in the text, once on his own lips, he mentioned the fact that he pursued not only men, but also women. Maybe with hindsight, this was part of the shame that Paul bore in later life when he described himself as a violent man and the chief of sinners. And when the scope for terror and torture had been exhausted in the area around Jerusalem and Judea, he started to pursue believers beyond that. And in the story that we read a moment or two ago, he decided to go to Damascus, 135 miles north of Jerusalem, where there was in his day a substantial Jewish community. Uh, Saul must have been well-connected well enough connected to enable him to gain access to the high priest so that he could get the necessary authority to arrest and transport people from Damascus to Jerusalem. This was first century rendition. But something happened. Something so significant happened that the story is told three times in the book of the Acts one of the few conversion narratives in the whole of the New Testament that is told more than once. Craig Keener, in his commentary, entitles the first section of that reading, Acts chapter 9, verses 1 to 9, he gives it this title, Jesus Arrests Saul. When Saul was nearly at his destination, he was surrounded in a bright light, fell to the ground, and was addressed directly by God. When he got to his feet after the vision stopped, he was blind. 
and he had to be led into the city by the hand. The reality is, as you look at the story of what happened on the road to Damascus that day, Saul instantly knew what was happening. As an Old Testament scholar, he knew what that blinding light signified. He realized that this was the Shekinah glory of Yahweh. This was the ultimate sign of the imminent presence of God himself. And as he was addressed from the glory by Jesus of Nazareth, he also knew what he later testified to in Damascus, that Jesus had to be the Son of God. Here he was in the Shekinah glory of Yahweh addressing Saul. Jesus was who he said he was. And in that instant, he knew that the whole direction of his life had been changed forever. He did not yet know fully what it meant. But he did know that he was never going back to the life that he left in Jerusalem before he set out for Damascus. He spent three days in Damascus in fasting and prayer. In the religious context in which Saul grew up, that was a sign of repentance and mourning. It was for him a time of waiting for orders because that's what the voice of God had said. You've got to go into Jerusalem and you're going to find out there what you have to do. This was the prelude to an ongoing, ongoing story of courage, sacrifice and power. As in response to the call of the master, the Hebrew of Hebrews became the apostle to the Gentiles. Stunning, almost unbelievable reversal in one person's life and one of the most significant missionary endeavors the church has ever seen was about to commence. What a story. That's the context of what we're going to think about now in a moment or two. But just to pause before we move on to what we want to address today, who knows where your life might go if you respond to God's call? Who knows how little your life up to this point might affect what God really wants to do with you from this point on. Saul's life could hardly have been more radically changed in that moment on the road to Damascus than it was. And nothing in his past pointed in this direction until God stepped in and changed everything. Who knows where you might go? Who knows who you might be if you respond to God's call? But all this had just happened in Saul's life. The question was, would there be a welcome for him in the fellowship of believers among the people he had persecuted? The reality was that neither in Damascus nor in Jerusalem was there the slightest chance. The reaction to the news of his conversion was similar in each case. On the one hand, in Damascus, we have just heard Ananias say, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. It's like Ananias saying to God, you can't actually be serious here. Do you know who this guy is? Do you know what he's done? 
Do you know why he's here in Damascus right now? And you're asking me to go to his house to pray for him, to restore his sight. And then in Acts chapter 9 and verse 26, when Saul came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. And but for the faith and obedience of two individuals, there would have been no welcome for Saul. And it's those two individuals I want to think about for a moment, what we can learn from them about what welcome really means in the life of church. The first one is Ananias. It is the case that Ananias was not an uncommon name among Jewish families at this time. And the name means Yahweh is gracious. And here was a man who embodied the truth of his name. You may remember later in the book of the Acts, there's a story about a Roman centurion called Cornelius and the apostle Peter. And on that occasion, uh, which you'll come to see uh, in this series of studies in a while, on that occasion, there were two Visions. One was given to Cornelius about Peter and the other was given to Peter about Cornelius. And exactly the same thing happens here in the story of Saul of Tarsus. There was a vision that Saul had which told him about Ananias and there was a vision that Ananias had that told him about Saul. God working in that way, dealing with both parties at the same time, giving them visions about one another. The vision that came to Ananias, it would seem, came in the daytime. And the voice which addressed him was well known to him. For when his name was called, he answered, according to the text, Yes, Lord. What he actually said, if it were literally translated, was, Here I am, Lord. The ancient response to the call of God that you find across the scripture in the generations. The Lord informs him about Saul and that Saul has had a vision in which he sees a man called Ananias laying hands on him for the restoration of his sight. And Ananias is reluctant to obey the vision. He is reluctant to take the risk. And he reminds the Lord of who Saul is, of his reputation, of the intention which has brought him to Damascus. But God simply says to him, go, go anyway, I know all that. You think you're telling me something I'm not aware of? Go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel, and I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. So Ananias has no choice. Off he goes to locate the house and its very broken guest. And when he comes, if you look at the story of what Ananias did, You could imagine how Ananias would, in the circumstances, have kept his visit to the bare minimum. Go in, restore the guy's sight, and get out as quickly as he could. But he uses no such half measures. He comes in, and the first thing the text said is that he touches Saul. He lays his hands on him. Just think for a moment how significant that would have been to a man who cannot see the welcome on the stranger's face. He's blind. He cannot see the demeanor of the person who has just come into the room, but what he feels is the welcome touch of his hands. And then he heals him. 
His sight is restored. Dr. Luke uses a term which is usually translated in English versions about scales falling from Saul's eyes as Ananias lays hands on him. What, what the term that is used there is a medical term, which I suppose you would expect Dr. Luke to do, and it's a medical term which usually is used for skin falling off. He heals him, and then he anoints him. The blessing he mediates is even greater than the promise that Saul was given, because God had said to him, had given him a vision in which this guy Ananias would appear to give him a sight. And he did that, but he did much more than that. Not just healing, but also filling with the Holy Spirit. After which Ananias baptizes him, which was a sign of his cleansing and his filling by the power of God. And then he gives him something to eat for his bodily strength to return. Ananias uses no half measures. His name means Yahweh is gracious. And Ananias' actions and activities in the presence of Saul that day became the absolute embodiment of his own name and of the character of the God he served. That was the welcome he gave. People come to church with scars. And if welcome is truly to be welcome, then it has to include the dressing of those wounds. Someone might have come to church because of a past. A past that still creates havoc in their lives. And even though they may have come to know Jesus, and even though they may want to be part of the community of people who love him and serve him, that past still hangs over them and needs dealt with. And to welcome people who come with scars, you have to begin to bind up wounds. I remember a young woman who came to faith on a Saturday evening on one of our Alpha courses. We were in Newcastle for our Alpha weekend that, at that particular time, and she came to faith on the Saturday evening. She was very emotional and upset after she gave her life to Christ. Actually, on that weekend, she and both of her parents came to Christ. It was quite a significant evening. Once she calmed down after having accepted Christ as her Savior and opened her life up to him, she said to me, John, you need to do something for me. I said, what's that? She said, you need to baptize me. I said, why now? I mean, can't it wait? No, it needs to happen as soon as possible. I said, why? She said, I did a lot of things within my life that I'm not proud of. And I need to feel a measure of cleansing now that what I was has been washed away. And the only way I can think of knowing that, she said, is if you baptize me. And so I did the Sunday evening following it in church. She came with scars, scars from her past. And the welcome had to include the binding of those wounds. Or it can be because of the present. It might not be your past that oppresses you so much as the situation you find yourself in right now, which has scarred your life and left you with bruises, and it needs to be bound up. 
was speaking yesterday morning at a church, uh, at a leaders gathering, talking about how that church might move forward to be open to the Holy Spirit. And um, mostly that gathering was me sharing my own experience of that and trying to encourage and lead that group of people somewhere. And they were really kind. And I, I don't know the church very well. I know the, the pastor is new to that church and he and I know each other, but I, I didn't really know anybody else in the room. And obviously I shared my story and talked a bit about that. It included information about the fact that I was recently bereaved of my wife. And um, after the session was over and uh, there was coffee, I don't even know if that was legal, but hey, it was good. And uh, after the coffee, I was leaving to give them time and space to talk over some of the things that we had been talking about. And I'd had coffee and was about to get in the car to drive back. So obviously I thought I'd better go to the loo before I drive on. And as I was attempting to enter the loo, the wife of one of the leaders of the congregation who had just been in the gathering that morning was coming out. And she stopped me for a moment and, she, and there were tears in her eyes and she said, what a burden you have had to carry this past 12 months. I want to pray for you. And she did. She prayed a beautiful prayer. I don't know, I don't know her she knew very little about me other than what I'd shared in the meeting a moment or two before, but she prayed a perceptive prayer about what was currently so heavy in my life. It might not be the past that is your problem. It might be the present. Whatever it is that has given scars in your life, part of the welcome of church has to mean the binding up of those wounds. Ananias' name means Yahweh is gracious. He lived that name out in who he was and in how he ministered to a man whose life was deeply, deeply scarred. Is that the kind of church we are? Who could you be Ananias to today? And then there was Barnabas. In the second part of the story, Saul leaves Damascus and uh, makes his way to Jerusalem. Barnabas meets him there. Barnabas receives no vision, no direct instruction from the Lord about this guy Saul who has just turned up. No specific orders whatsoever. It just says in Acts chapter 9 verse 27, Barnabas took Saul and brought him to the apostles. Barnabas wasn't this man's name. His name was Joseph. Barnabas was his nickname. And nicknames can be given to people for all sorts of things, and sometimes it's really hard to understand them. Sometimes it's dead easy, you know, because the nickname obviously features something about them, and when you come to know them, you know where the nickname came from. Or sometimes it's that perverse kind of thing that we, we do in Northern Ireland, this kind of weird sort of sense of humor that we have, that the nickname actually is the opposite of the person. So some really tall, skinny person gets called shorty, you know, this kind of thing that we do. And you can usually work that out, you know, um, but sometimes the nickname seems not really related to any particular feature about the person, but just generally who they are. 
And that was the reason behind Barnabas' nickname, because Barnabas means encourager. It was who he was. By the time Saul got to Jerusalem, he had been through the mill. As soon as he was converted and restored through the ministry of Ananias, he started preaching about Jesus and testifying to his conviction that Jesus was the Son of God. And it generated real opposition in Damascus, so much so that he was stalked day and night and had to escape under cover of darkness. Now, most of you here today aren't old enough to remember a television series which was on the BBC in 1960. I, however, am, because in that year, the BBC broadcast a 10-episode series entitled Paul of Tarsus. And Paul was played in this television series by Patrick Troughton, whom you might remember was Doctor Who at a later date. Okay, so that's quite a career. Paul of Tarsus to Doctor Who. And uh, I remember watching this series as a boy at home growing up. We didn't have a television very long at that point in time. It was black and white. Yeah, I know you're looking at me. What is a black and white television? I know you've never seen one, but believe me, there were black and white televisions a long time ago. And I remember the series. And the funny thing is that in my mind, this part of the, I don't remember much of the program, but I remember the night the program showed Paul being put down the wall of Damascus in a basket out of a window in the wall. People had built houses in the wall of the city, and so there were windows. And I don't, I don't know where it was filmed uh, for that particular series on television, but for some reason, it has imprinted itself on my mind, Paul in this basket kind of coming down from a window in the wall of the city. It was a grim kind of moment for him. It was for him a matter of shame, actually, later when he talks about it. He had to flee Damascus because the Jews hated him. That was hard. And then he got to Jerusalem, the believers didn't trust him and wouldn't let him in. And all of this was a a recipe for discouragement and defeat. You'd be thinking to yourself, well, why bother? The nation I used to be a part of don't want to have anything to do with me, and the church I've now joined doesn't want anything to do with me either. What am I supposed to do? And then Barnabas stepped in. He brought Saul in. He introduces him to the the apostles. But as well as that, he confirms Saul's story. He says, look, this, this guy went to Damascus to persecute the church, met God, was spoken to directly by the Lord, was healed and then preached in the synagogues there, so much so that they hated him and he had to flee from there. How did Barnabas know all that? Well, obviously, because he sat down with him and listened to the story. He took him out to Costa for a cup of coffee and said, tell me about it. He made the effort to explore who this person was and what was really going on in their lives and became convinced that what, Paul, what Saul had told him was true. But that wasn't all he did either because ultimately the same Barnabas opens the door to ministry for Saul some years later when Barnabas finds himself in a new church that has been birthed in a place called Antioch and he desperately needs help. What did he do? He goes to Tarsus to look for Saul, brought him back and brought him into the ministry team there. And he partnered with him in mission. He went with Saul on what we call the first missionary trip the first 
planned outreach of the Christian church into the Roman Empire of that generation was done by Barnabas and Saul. This was a long-term commitment to enable an outsider to become an insider. It's not just a one-off. Not just a handshake and a hello at the door, but a commitment to this person as an individual to see their life blossom in all the ways that God had blessed them, equipped them, and gifted them to become. Barnabas became one of the means whereby Saul arrived at all the potential the Lord had placed in his life. That's a Barnabas kind of welcome. I spent some time during the week with Ken and Val Newell, who've been friends of my wife and me for a very long time. And uh, I went to see them, and uh, they're both retired from work now and getting on a bit. Not that I can say that personally, but anyway, they are. Uh, and I suppose I'll never really forget them for one particular event. Christine and I found ourselves at a church function in the city we regarded as our own home. And it was a really difficult evening in a place where we should have felt completely at ease and completely ourselves in our own home city where we had grown up and amongst many people that we knew, we found ourselves for certain reasons to be complete outsiders. And it was one of those awkward kind of situations that you're in in a church event and you think to yourself, should we just slip out quietly and get in the car and drive home? And we were on the verge of doing that when Ken and Val spotted us. They came over to us. They engaged us in conversation. They went and got us a cup of coffee. They stayed with us for all the rest of the night. And they were such an incredible blessing for two people who felt complete outsiders in a situation where we should have been insiders, but who were welcomed and set at our ease by a couple of people who loved us enough and who, see, who obviously realized the situation we found ourselves in and came and spent the whole of the rest of their evening with us. But actually, as I think about Ken, I remember the fact that that was only one of a hundred things that he had done to be an encourager to me. Over the years, in earlier years, when I was an obnoxious so-and-so, violently disagreeing with him, arguing with him, and being a complete tube in all sorts of ways, he never gave up on me. He always tried to answer my arguments. I knew that he prayed for me, and I knew that if I ever saw him at something, he'd make a beeline to say hello. We sat together on the terraces watching football, often on a Saturday with my kids who loved it when he was there. And at various other points along the way, when I faced difficulties, he would ring me on the phone. He would show up at the door. Sometimes I didn't even know how he knew that his presence was needed. It was a long-term commitment to make an outsider feel like an insider. We need people who welcome people in church like that. Not just hello, 
not just to smile and heads good to see you, not even just getting you a cup of coffee and finding you a seat and occasionally sitting down with you so you're not sitting on your own. The people who make a long-term commitment to ensure that those who are outsiders become insiders and those whose lives are full of the potential of all that God has placed within them ultimately reach that potential. Who could you be a Barnabas to today? If we are really to be church, then that means we can't just be a group of people who say that everyone is welcome. We need to be a group of people who have among us multiple Ananases and multiple Barnabases who find ways to bring outsiders in and who find ways to bind up the scars and wounds with which people come. People from all backgrounds, people who present to us all sorts of difficulties and challenges and all the rest of it, but people whoever they are because of the Ananases and the Barnabases in our midst actually find a welcome.